This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Judy Southworth. In this week's programme, Gregor Campbell looks at some strange goings-on in the Southern Cemetery and Anne Barraclough tells us about the history of the Lake Wakatipu Ferry, Earnslaw. The newspaper Truth is now a dead weekly. Its salacious content made it a publication that many read, although they wouldn't admit it, but it was not always salacity for salacity's sake. In its early days, it was a crusader for justice, happily making a meal of stories which other newspapers merely nibbled at. Gregor Campbell reads a story about an aborted 1910 Dunedin burial that must have caused a sensation. There is a storm of no uncertain nature brewing in the Scotch-Paterian teapot of Dua Dunedin. And when it breaks, there are going to be reputations and other things broken simultaneously. The people of Dunedin, who have dear departed friends and relatives in the little graveyard which occupies a commanding site in Dunedin South, have had a rude shock through the disinterring of a cemetery scandal, which wants a lot of explanation. There are rumours of disinterment and burnings of remains and all sorts of atrocities in connection with the South Dunedin Cemetery, which have just had ventilation through a most atrocious deed, which, if sheeted home, ought to merit a salutary sentence for the conscienceless perpetrator. Dunedin's dailies dealt with the matter in veiled terms on Tuesday last, and, to keep in with the powers that be and the fat subscribers, all names in any of the reports were scrupulously suppressed. Truth, which tries to live up to its name, and generally succeeds, went out and in spite of extreme reticence on the part of everyone concerned with the matter, managed to get a fairly coherent version of the alleged awfulness. It appears that some seven years ago, a poor old individual named Townsend, who was one of the joyful and contented inhabitants of the old men's home, did his country the favour of passing in his mess number, and plus a wooden overcoat, was planted in the Dunedin South Cemetery with the usual ceremonies, which are given to parties who have slightly less filthy lucre than John D. Rockefeller. Old man Townsend had a lot of company in his last earthly habitation, as he was only three feet under the sod, but old man Townsend couldn't even have three feet as he was occupying the wrong patch, so to speak, and was dug up, at least what was left of him, and burned. The cause for old man Townsend's disinterment was that he had the high-flown impertinence to have a concrete curb around his grave, which was put there by mistake and cost 35 shillings, or thereabouts, and was not paid for. The wall ought to have been put around the little plot of a man of the same name, but of a different spelling, namely Townshend, and this was ultimately done. Now the relatives of the party who was buried on Monday last, named Ansel, bought Old Man Townsend's little plot from the Dunedin City Council, which is a godly body, and erects prohibition notices on its public reserves. Old Man Townsend hadn't paid for his last sleep, so was dug up 
and turned over to the tender mercies of an amateur crematorium on Saturday last, and with great persistency kept burning until the time of his successor's funeral, and to the great discomfort of the parson and the mourners. In fact, the ashes of old man Townsend were smouldering and stenching some five yards away at the time the Reverend Siggers of St Matthew's was reciting the last offices for the dead. The scene of the horrible occurrence is in the Anglican portion of the cemetery, and that portion is under control of the Anglican Cemetery Trust. Chief Tech, Paddy Herbert, knew that something was going to happen and sent up Tech Hunt to see into matters, but of course he could do nothing until the funeral was over. Things are moving with much swiftness now, and someone is going to find trouble over the matter as the removal of a body from a grave without the permission of the colonial secretary is a breach of the Cemeteries Act. Truth knows the name of the responsible parties and also some other fine facts about the cemetery at Dunedin South, but, as the case is practically sub judice, it would be unwise to comment on the matter. However, one thing is sure, if nothing is done about old man Townsend's desecration, truth will take a hand in the game. The newspaper kept its promise. Within a fortnight, it went after those it deemed responsible for desecrating poor Townsend's grave and burning his body on an amateurish funeral pyre. Gregor Campbell continues his reading. It is now ten days since the mortal remains of old man Townsend were rudely dug up out of his pauper's grave by Sexton Scarf in the Anglican portion of the Dunedin South Cemetery, and nothing has been done towards relieving the public mind by a thorough investigation of the circumstances and the punishment of the offender against the canons of common decency, if not against the law of the Dominion. The Anglican portion of South Dunedin Cemetery is under the management of a board of trustees composed mostly of parsons, with a lawyer named C.E. Statham as secretary, and is taking shelter behind the fact that the Cemeteries Act permits of the grave of a pauper being resold after the expiration of seven years from the date of burial. Also, in the event of any irregularities taking place in the cemetery, or on the part of its servants, the onus of prosecution lies with the trustees, not with the police. Truth was under the impression that Section 67 and 68 of the Cemeteries Act of 1906, Consolidated Statutes, provided a penalty of £50 or three months imprisonment for the removal of a body without the permission of the Colonial Secretary. If this is so, then somebody ought to be prosecuted. Anyway, it says very little for the much-lauded humanity of the trustees that they knew of such disinternments taking place and did not put a stop to them immediately. If the cemetery is full to overcrowding, it is a matter for which provision could have been made years ago and steps should have been taken to acquire further land in the vicinity of Dunedin. Truth here wonders what special privileges the trustees have got which allow them to enter within borough boundaries. All the steps the trustees have taken are to suspend Sexton Scarf 
and take possession of his books and papers, and the suspension cannot count for much, as, on a truth representative's visit some days after the suspension, he was still working in the cemetery. This sounds suspiciously like trying to hush the matter up by, on the one hand, satisfying the short-memoried public, and on the other hand, satisfying a servant who is no doubt valuable to a soulless body. Canon Curzon Siggers, who was the owner of the Boss Anglican Church in Dunedin, admits that he advised the widow of the party, who was interred in Old Man Townsend's grave, to allow the funeral, at which he and Parson King officiated, to proceed as the possibilities were that there would be nothing more done. These are the words of this piece of ecclesiastical artillery. Criticism of them would be useless. They show a fine spirit of Christian charity, and yet the reverend gent no doubt preached goodwill to men on Christmas and will keep doing it and chiming his bells. The reverend gent, who by the way is one of the trustees, and that explains a lot, takes great consolation from the fact that there was not enough of old man Townsend left to fill a quarter of an oil drum. Nor could anyone have proved they were human bones of any particular portion of the body. This is a very pretty piece of self-justification, and it is eminently parsonical in its way. How would Parson Siggers like the remains of one of his children, if he has any, to be disinterred and burnt? Would it console him to know that there was only a quarter of an oil tin left? or that they couldn't be recognised from those of a dog? Truth rather thinks not. Parson Siggers is a rich man, and he would raise Cain in such a tremendous row that every sexton in the cemetery would get short shrift. Truth has heard further allegations in connection with this delectable cemetery with which the Dunedin public should be acquainted. Most people with affectionate feelings for their dead are in the habit of offering up flowers and shrubs and planting them on the graves. And sextons are paid small sums by the relatives to look after the graves in their spare time. Now, in very numerous instances, these flowers and shrubs have been stolen and in some cases have been sold outside or to other mourners. Maybe the board will also let this pass without action. Those who would steal from the dead are soulless rascals. Those who disturb the dead are not much better if as good. Truth wants to know what the trustees are going to do about these things. It has the law at its command. It also has the power to take action. Will it simply let things slide? Eleven days later, Truth returned to the story again under a main headline which read, Sexton Scarf's Sudden Scoot. And the subheadlines, which read, Smug Sanctified Body Snatchers, and Are the Anglicans Anxious? It is now three weeks since Sexton Scarf, who dug up the mortal remains of Old Man Townsend out of their pauper's grave and reburned them, shook the dust of Holy Dunedin off his feet, and disappeared suddenly. Shortly before Scarf disappeared, it was announced by the Daily Papers that the detective department was going to take action against him under the Crimes Act, and this may possibly have accounted for his disappearance. The proper parties to take action against Scarf were his employers. Canon, 
Curzon Siggers and other members of the Church of England Cemetery Trustees under a section of the Cemeteries Act which applies to such a case. But these worthies first suspended Scarf while popular indignation was hot on the matter, then reinstated him when they thought things had quietened down and finally let him slip through their fingers when the police began to look like business. Now truth readers might be interested to know what steps the trustees have taken to find out where Sexton Scarf has gone to, and perhaps an explanation of the position may show that there is more in the disappearance of Scarf than meets the eye at the first glance. From the police point of view, it is doubtful whether a charge laid by them under the Crimes Act would fit in the case of Scarf. The section under which proceedings were threatened provides punishment for any person committing any indignity on the dead, and this, it was considered, would be construed to be mutilation or other acts of a similar nature. Scarf's case scarcely comes within that category, and Truth is inclined to agree with the poll that proceedings under that section would never reach a jury, and if they did, would be thrown out. What has been the action of this spineless lot of wowsers? Nothing but a masterly inactivity which looks suspicious. No information has been laid against Scarf, and the only step that has been taken is to mildly ask the police to keep a lookout for Scarf. If an information had been laid, it would hold good for all time, even though the summons were not served on Scarf for years. But all that is done is to make a request to the police, which will be worse than useless. For the sake of example, let us suppose that Scarf was located in Auckland by some energetic constable. What can the constable do? He can merely write to Dunedin and say, I saw a party here who looks like Scarf, but I have no summons for him, as there is no warrant out against him. What do you want with him, and what am I to do? Then the Dunedin police have to run around to tell the trustee's secretary, if he happens to be in, the momentous news. Then the secretary has got to call a meeting of the trustees, and if they should happen by any chance, which Truth considers doubtful, to decide to prosecute, by the time the information is laid, the summons issued, and the Auckland police communicated with, Scarf, warned by his friends, could be in Honolulu or Frisco or the South Pole. The whole action, or rather inaction, of the trustees is a suspicious farce, intended to throw dust in the eyes of the public, and it is not going to if truth can help it. Look at the attitude of this pious push. From whatever light the reader will, he cannot fail to conclude that they don't want to see Sexton Scarf again, and that they hope the police will not see him, and that the public can go to the deuce. If Sexton Scarf was arrested and tried in open court by a jury of his fellow men, truth understands that such revelations would be made in connection with the Southern Cemetery that would stagger this dominion with horror and revulsion. Truth has given up all hope of the Parsons ever taking action on their own initiative. And, as the six months necessary for the information to be laid are rapidly passing, it would like to know whether the Anglican community which delegates its authority to smug, sanctified body snatchers, is going to force their hands and compel them to disclose the ghastly secrets of their consecrated boneyard. In its own interests as a body, if not in the interests of 
the public as a whole, the Anglican community should do so. What guarantee has it that its own paid-for graves have not been tampered with? How does it know that its own little individual family plot does not contain some unwanted corpse, whose relatives no doubt paid for a plot, but for whom no unoccupied corner could be found? For all it knows, Sexton's scarf may have burned the remains of one of its relatives, just as he burned those of old man Townsend. It is up to the Anglican community to get busy and compel the shedding of a little light on the gruesome darkness. In parting, Truth would also like to know when the City Council is going to close the cemetery. The cemetery is admitted to be packed as full as a sardine tin. And, although a portion of it has been closed for burials, yet the Anglican portion is being cheerfully packed tighter every week. Why the privilege should be granted to every special sect, truth cannot see, but there must be a reason. Perhaps Mayor Cole, who is an undertaker and ought to be perfectly conversant with these matters, make a statement in answer to the questions at the next meeting of the Council. It certainly would interest the public. Shortly before the preceding issue of Truth was published, Sexton Daniel's scarf went missing without trace. The Otago Daily Times reported that the recent trouble at the cemetery had been preying on his mind. In September of 1912, a man's boot, with a sock and portions of a human foot, were found in the spoil deposited by the harbour dredge. The boot was described as a size 8 box calf Balmoral design, with toe plate and O'Sullivan's cushion rubber heel. Sexton Daniel's scarf was but one of four disappeared men whose boot it might have been. I am the completely bodily intact Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. In the days before there were reliable roads in Queenstown, the ferries in Lake Wakatipu were king. Many ships plied their trade from Kingston to the township before the Queen of the Fleet, the Earnslaw, proved it could outlast them all. This report from Anne Barapuff. Few of us who have lived in or visited Queenstown have not seen or been for a trip up the lake on the Earnslaw. Prior to the arrival of the Europeans, Maori used to travel the Wakatipu in canoes hollowed from totara trees growing on pig and goat islands. David McKellar in 1857, made his way up from Kingston to what would become Queenstown in a mokihi, a raft made out of flax stalks by the Maori. In 1859, explorer Donald Hay, also in a mokihi, sailed up the lake, followed in 1860 by von Tunzelman and Rees, looking for sites to establish their sheep stations, who travelled as far as Bob's Cove. This convinced Rees that water transport would be essential to transport stock and supplies to his chosen site in Queenstown Bay. So he purchased a whaleboat, the Undine, from a Mr Ahers at Bluff and had it hauled by bullock sledge to Kingston under the care of Bob Fortune, whose name was given to Bob's Cove. Reese's whaleboat carried the first consignment of 25,000 ounces of gold from the Wakatipu diggings. He soon bought a second boat, known as the Lady of the Lake, followed by several more. 
In May 1863, the Lake Wakatipu Mail advertised several shipping services, steamers Wakatip, Expert, Victoria, cutters Moa and Wild Wave, and the yacht Wild Irish Girl. The steamer Nugget came from Melbourne as deck cargo to Dunedin in 1862, was assembled at Port Chalmers and ferried passengers to the entertainment at Vauxhall Gardens. She was soon bought by a successful miner, Mr McGregor, cut in half, transported by bullock wagon to Kingston, reassembled and put to work on the busy lake. The first steamer on the lake, making the 25-mile trip from Kingston to Queenstown in three and a half hours. She was later renamed the Alexander after the Prince of Wales's wife. Wakatipu was built at Pigeon Island and sailed down to Kingston to have her engine fitted. In 1869 and 72, the Antrim, a paddle steamer, and steamer Ben Lomond, originally called the Jane Williams, respectively, began their long service on the lake. In February 1879, the newly formed Wakatipu Steam Shipping Company launched the paddle steamer Mountaineer. A price war with the owners of other steamers on the lake precipitated the company winding up in October 1882. In November 1885, the Wakatipu Steamship Company was formed, now owning the Antrim, Jane Williams, Mountaineer and Venus, and providing a service linking with the railway now running to Kingston. However, they held a monopoly, and consumers complained of their high charges, petitioning the Premier, Richard John Seddon, to provide a government-owned boat in conjunction with the railways to run on the lake. A new company, Lake Wakatipu Steam Shipping Company, was formed in July 1899, which took over the ownership and running of the three steamers, attempting to meet the demand for a better and cheaper service. But dissatisfaction continued, and the government announced it would let tenders for a new vessel, which it did when it purchased, under New Zealand Railways, the Lake Wakatipu Shipping Company in 1902. The rail trip from Kingston to Gore was speeded up, and the passenger service was given the name the Kingston Flyer, which many of us will remember in connection with the old train by that name, which gave rides from Kingston to Lumsden. By 1905, the railway had reached Omakau. The demand for the Wakatipu steamers carrying freight had fallen off. The Wakatipu Mail, in an article titled The Lake Wakatipu Navy, wrote, The Mountaineer is the dreadnought of the Lake Wakatipu Navy, a trim little steamer. She is modern, as far as steamers of the Lake District are concerned, and she is under 30 years old. Her consorts are the Bren Lomond, a small screw steamer somewhat newer than the mountain from which she takes her name, and the Antrim, a little wooden paddle boat dating from ancient times, which has plied on the lake for 40 years. The Ben Lomond is still used as a passenger boat and does passably well when the weather is fine. Of her capabilities under adverse weather conditions, the less said the better. It is obvious the Navy should be strengthened by the addition of an improved dreadnought in the shape of a paddle steamer somewhat larger, swifter and more comfortable than the Mountaineer. In September 1910, a tender of 
£20,950 by Messrs John McGregor and Company of Dunedin was accepted to build the new steamer of steel construction with two boilers weighing 19 tonnes each, fitted with steam steering gear and winches, able to go at 13 knots and carry a 1,000 people. The plans were put on display in Queenstown for public viewing and the completed keel and framing were railed to Kingston by a special goods train in November 1911, where she was reassembled and completed. She was launched on February 24, 1912, and named the Law. Crowds lined vantage points round the lake for her two trial runs in August and cheered loudly as she passed. On Friday the 18th of October, special guests and passengers boarded her in Kingston for her maiden voyage. She was lit by electricity and gay with flags and bunting and bands played. The next day, a holiday was declared and 500 people took advantage of a special excursion to Glenorchy. On Easter Sunday, 1914, on an excursion, she carried a full complement of 1,056 people for the first time. The Antrim Mountaineer and Ben Lomond reached the ends of their lives, but the Urns Law, which now has a Category 1 heritage listing, is still running and has been leased, then owned, by Fiordland Travel since December 1969. She is the first vessel in New Zealand protected by a district plan and the only remaining commercial passenger-carrying coal-fired steamship in the Southern Hemisphere. How long she will be coal-fired remains to be seen. Her black smoke does nothing for our clean green image. Nonetheless, with her proud red funnel and long slender white hull, as she graciously makes her way across the Wakatipu and in and out of her wharf in Queenstown, she is a popular and familiar sight. Now that tourism has slowed down due to COVID-19, we can only hope that she, the Lady of the Lake, will be seen for many more years. I am grateful for the voice of Bill Southworth and Lady of the Lake by Malcolm Mackay and All Aboard by R.J. Mayer. I am Anne Barraclough, reporting for Heritage Matters. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.